Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of litigation which have shaped Australian public life. You can find past episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at, at Townsend Joel C. Really happy to hear any feedback you have about past episodes, uh, any suggestions for episodes in future. I want to talk today about the Certain Children litigation, a series of three proceedings before the Supreme Court of Victoria uh, that occurred in late 2016 and early 2017. And they all related to the transfer of children from the Parkville Juvenile Justice Facility to a unit at Barwon Prison, Victoria's maximum security prison. This followed on 12 and 13 November 2016 some incidents at the Parkville facility in which some parts of that facility were damaged. Later in the month, by in fact the 17th of that month, a unit at Bowen Prison, the Gravillia unit, had been excised from the prison as a matter of law and created a juvenile justice facility. And there were decisions made to transfer a number of uh, young people from Parkville to this unit. And that was immediately challenged by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service because there were some Aboriginal children who were amongst the transferees. The government on the 29th of November undertook that those Aboriginal children would not be detained at Barwon, not at the Gravillia unit at Barwon. And so that proceeding fell away. But on uh, 2 December, a proceeding was issued challenging more generally the decision to create this new unit and to transfer children there. So that was a proceeding which was spearheaded by the Human Rights Law Centre and it was heard before Justice Guard of the Supreme Court on the 12th to the 15th of December. And the Human Rights Law Centre argued that Section 38 of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities imposed an obligation on the government to take into account the human rights of these children in making its decisions and the Senate went on to argue that no such consideration had been given and that the decision was therefore, or the decisions were therefore invalid. Uh, the Human Rights Law Centre also argued that there'd been a failure to take into account matters which the government was required to take into account under the Children, Youth and Families Act. And it also argued that this was a decision that was made for an improper purpose. It was the creation of this facility at Bowen Prison for the purposes of um, providing emergency accommodation, not for the purposes which the uh, Children, Youth and Families Act uh, permitted such uh, facilities to be created for. So those arguments were successful. Justice Guard found that there hadn't been proper consideration of the Charter and that the uh, decisions were therefore invalid and also found that there had been an improper purpose 
on the part of uh, the, uh, the government in taking this course. The government promptly appealed to the Court of Appeal and notwithstanding the time of year, the matter was heard very quickly. On the 28th and 29th of December, the Court of Appeal heard that case and it rejected the government's arguments in relation to the Charter. It said that indeed Justice Gardner was right that there had been a failure to consider the Charter in making these decisions and that the decisions were therefore invalid, but it rejected the improper purpose ground. It found that there was no relevant improper purpose. And so then the matter came on again in April because the government, after the Court of Appeal decision, uh, promptly made another decision to gazette the same facility and made uh, equivalent transfer decisions. So the matter came on again for a further challenge to those decisions before Justice John Dixon in April 2017. Very intense litigation and involved heavily throughout that litigation was Alina Lakin, who was at the time working at the Human Rights Law Centre. Full disclosure, Alina is about to come and work with me at Victoria Legal Aid, uh, but she was working at the Human Rights Law Centre at the time, and I spoke to her about the course of that litigation. I don't know enough about your background prior to you running this case. Was was youth justice always a passion for you? Um. Well, no. I mean, in the sense that I'd really never had any experience or exposure working in um, or around youth justice before working on the Bowen cases. My background um, was basically that I was working in a commercial firm, but doing lots of pro bono work and particularly lots of um, work with the Human Rights Law Centre and then eventually made the shift across to the HRLC. Um, and was working in the Indigenous Rights Unit at the time um, on a range of different matters. And this case, or these cases, came up very quickly and everything was done very, very urgently. And I guess my value add was that I had quite a lot of litigation experience rather than subject matter experience. So it made sense for me to kind of be involved. But um, in terms of the subject matter, yeah, it wasn't really something I'd ever... Um, worked on before, but certainly immediately working on the cases, I realised that definitely something that I'm very, very passionate about. So it was, uh, I think, uh, only a month between when there were um, incidents at the Youth Detention Centre um, at Parkville and when you were on at the Supreme Court challenging the decisions of the... Um, authorities to move these kids to Barwon Prison. That must have been an incredibly intense um, period of time with all of those decisions made and all of what I must, uh, I can only imagine must have been really extensive preparation. Oh, it was absolutely insane. Um, and in fact, and sometimes it gets skipped over, but we, um, the riot took place on the 16th of November um, and then the kids were moved a couple of, or, you know, the first um, kind of group of kids were moved in the days following. And we pretty much immediately um, 
to injunct the transfer of the kids, but we ultimately didn't proceed with um, that injunction application and instead got a listing of the matter, which was actually listed um, eight days from the initial filing of documents. Um, and that initial matter was with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service um, and therefore we were limited in terms of who the plaintiffs in the very first matter were to the Aboriginal kids who vows were acting for. Um, and, and that matter resolved the day prior to the listed trial date. So, in fact, between um, when we were on before Justice Guard and the very initial filing, there was a case that was filed and settled um, before a hearing that was actually listed considerably earlier. Um, and then, of course, um, the day after that matter was resolved, we filed the proceeding, which was ultimately heard by Justice Guard. Um, so it was filed, I think, from memory, 11 days prior to the hearing commencing. And as you say, in that time, we obviously needed to collect evidence, um, including um, seeking extensive instructions from the kids who are actually being detained at Barwon um, and prepare submissions and consider all manner of legal issues. So the timeframes were unlike, I think, anything that anyone involved in the cases had really ever dealt with before. And so just to backtrack to, to the settlement, as I understand it, what happens is a bunch of kids are moved from um, the youth detention facilities in the aftermath of, of the riot um, to... Um, a unit at Barwon Maximum Security Prison and <clears throat> amongst those kids are Aboriginal kids. And when you say the that the case on behalf of those kids settled, what you mean is that the government um, removed those kids from detention but um, but non-Aboriginal kids continued to be detained at Barwon. Yeah, that's right. And and I mean it was it was an absolutely extraordinary um, decision, one that we were completely, I guess, um, unprepared for and that we just, we weren't expecting that that sort of settlement would be forthcoming. And when we filed the very first proceeding, um, we thought it was probably not um, enormously important who the plaintiffs were because um, the outcome of the case would be applicable for every child in that situation. So we just, um, we were really moving, as, as you said, very, very quickly. And so um, we were focused on on um, getting a case up and, and um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service um, very quickly came on board. So we just assumed that the outcome would flow through for all the kids. But when the settlement um, took place and as you say the Aboriginal kids were moved out of the facility we obviously had to very quickly regroup and think about how we would continue the exercise for the rest of the kids who were left behind um, and quite incredibly the Aboriginal Legal Service um, in terms of the advocacy the public advocacy that was happening continued to play a really active role in saying whilst the outcome for their clients was obviously an incredible one, um, it was critically important that all kids be removed back to appropriate youth justice facilities and that no child should be left behind in those conditions. So, yeah, and, and, and we moved really quickly to file the second proceeding 
which was the matter that Justice Guard heard the day after that settlement was finalised. And so <clears throat> you don't necessarily bring that background in youth justice and, and you are having to run this litigation at the same time. Not only are you having to get to know these kids in youth detention, but visiting uh, facilities like this is not something that's been a big part of your professional life. So it must have been a really steep learning curve for you, just getting used to those environments and also building those relationships with those young people. Yeah, I mean, I think that was in many ways the hardest and by far the most rewarding um, and privileged sort of experience that I've ever had professionally. Um, I spent probably over that entire six-month period, probably on average two or three days a week inside the walls of Bowen Prison um, at the Gravillia unit, speaking to the kids and, and getting their instructions and often... Um, you know, writing affidavits with them and really, I guess, getting to know them on a really personal level as well as um, understanding the conditions that they were in and the situations that they faced. Um, and, uh, you know, ironically, the first time I'd ever been in a youth justice facility was probably about a week before the November incident that sparked all of the cases um, on a tour with the staff from the Parkville College School inside the um, Youth Justice Centre and I was totally blown away by how incredible the school staff um, were and, and how much they seemed to have um, this really deep understanding of the needs of the young people that they were working with and kind of left Parkville feeling really hopeful about um, at least on that side of things, on the education side of things, um, the experience that these kids were, were having. And then a week later, um, I found myself at the Bowen Maximum Security Men's Prison visiting kids detained in conditions that, you know, couldn't, could really only be described as cruel, inhuman and degrading, which is ultimately what Justice Guard found those conditions to be. Um, and such horrific circumstances that it couldn't have been more of a polar opposite feeling to the one I had, um, you know, only just such a short time before on that tour that, that I was lucky to have at Parkville. I think, you know, the first couple of weeks of the Grevillea unit um, were just absolute unmitigated chaos. Um, we saw, saw situations where, for example, the adult corrections emergency response team came into the unit with German Shepherd dogs and not just into the unit, but in fact into the, the cell of one of the boys who was having, you know, a really serious mental health episode. And that kind of response was pretty emblematic of the whole environment of the Grevillea unit. Um, it was, it, it is and can only really be described as a very um, and completely oppressive, very high security unit of a men's adult prison. Um, and everything about it, including, you know, at the beginning, for example, the sinks in the cells were made of porcelain, which you never have in a youth justice facility because there's a really high risk of self-harm. If a child breaks a porcelain sink, you know, they can use the, the pieces of porcelain to self-harm, which is precisely what happened. Um in those early weeks of the Grevillea unit, 
you know, the kids were in their cells 23 or 24 sometimes hours a day and the level of desperation um, and I think panic was just so palpable going into that unit. I remember the first, my first visit, which was a Saturday or Sunday, kind of walking towards um, the front door, the door into the unit and a child who was in a cell sort of directly above that door just screaming out of the window that, you know, I couldn't see him because the windows were not um, not transparent, but we could hear him screaming, help me, help me, and banging on the door. And just that, you know, the noise um, is so loud because the kids were in their cells so many hours a day. Just the banging on doors, the yelling out of cells, it was really a haunting and pretty horrifying place to be um, and especially in those very early weeks um, and nobody really seemed to have any idea what was going on or any sense of how things would change day to day and what was planned day to day. I think Justice Guard said in his judgment that the government was flying blind when they gazetted the Grevillea unit. Nobody really understood how it would be possible to hold children in that environment and the ways in which that would kind of um, take place. So there was a real sense, I think, both amongst the kids but also amongst the staff of the unknown and the panic that's associated with that. And as, as a person going into that environment to speak with the kids about the situation that they were in, it was pretty horrifying. As I said at the outset... Um, Justice Guard considered arguments relating to consideration of uh, human rights under the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities and argument as to the bad faith of the government in making the gazettal decision and the decision to transfer the detainees. I talked to Alina about that proceeding before Justice Guard and the Court of Appeal proceeding and also about uh, preparation for the hearing before Justice Dixon. Justice Guard's decision turns in the end on on these two basic propositions, as I understand it, that there was a failure by the um, Secretary to the Department of Justice in gazetting. Was it the minister? There was a there was an error by the minister in in yeah. um, gazetting the Grevillea unit as a youth justice centre in not taking into account some things that had to be taken into account, the the mm-hmm. sorts of things which youth detention is expected to offer, and these are largely beneficial things, uh, recognising that young people need to be given the opportunity to... to um, rehabilitate to to turn their lives around and to access those basic rights health education and the like and he also uh, concluded that the minister had an improper purpose in gazetting um the the Gravillia unit as a youth justice center so that was a that was a pretty substantial win especially when you add to the fact that it was one of the relatively few cases in Victoria where there was success in saying there was a breach of human rights by a public authority. So you must have reached that point in the process and felt vindicated. Yeah, I mean, absolutely we did. It was it was a great judgment. Um, and as you say, it, 
it was a win both on the administrative law grounds and also on um, the charter grounds. Um, and in a way, we were thrilled, obviously, to win. We were anticipating um, that it was likely the government would appeal that decision. I think even um, in the lead-up to the judgment, which there was, there was about a week between the conclusion of the hearing and Justice Guy delivering um, his decision. And immediately, literally, as Justice Guy concluded um, giving his um, reasons, the Solicitor General um, made an application that the decision be stayed pending an appeal. So we knew, you know, as soon as sort of that elation of the win was very much um, curbed by the fact that we knew the kids wouldn't be getting out at least immediately and that we would be facing an appeal very shortly. Um, and we also, I guess, to some degree anticipated what, what then took place after we ultimately won the appeal, which was that um, the government re-gazetted or the minister re-gazetted the same unit um, seeking, I suppose, to circumvent some of the reasons for Justice Gard's decision. The Court of Appeal somewhat narrowed what Justice Gard um, had found and found that there wasn't an improper purpose in gazetting um, the Gravelia unit, but found that there had been a failure to take into account relevant in the sense of mandatory considerations. That's right, yeah. And I, I mean, I think... Um, as you say, the Court of Appeal didn't agree with Justice Card on the improper purpose argument, but for us, obviously, the fact that we got across the line on the other admin law grounds was um, enough to get us, um, well, it, theoretically, to get the kids out of the facility. Um, but I, again, as I said, we, we, we anticipated that it was very possible that the minister would take the step of re-gazetting the facility to avoid the Court of Appeals' decision that it would be unlawful to continue to hold children in the Gravelia unit. And ultimately, that was done on the 30th of December, which was the day after the Court of Appeal gave reasons for the decision on the 29th of December. Um, and, and I think the other thing that was quite interesting was that the Court of Appeal deferred the um, the aspect of the appeal that related to the charter grounds and ultimately um, the government withdrew that appeal and that was never heard by the Court of Appeal. So that I think it would have been quite interesting to see what the Court of Appeal made of um, Justice Guard's decision on the charter grounds that there was ultimately not the opportunity for that to happen. Mm. And so then there's quite a, um, a, in the in the scheme of the fast pace of this litigation, there's a, a little bit more of a, a delay, a bit of a slower pace moving towards the, um, the subsequent decision of Justice John Dixon, and that's heard mm. in April. And I'm assuming that's because the Gazette all this time round was pretty carefully crafted by the minister and by the minister's advisers and so there was a need to do more to gather evidence to try to attack that gazettal. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so um, the pace basically between the incident in November and the Court of Appeal judgment um, right before the end of the year was incredibly, I mean, it was it was just completely frantic. And um, I think the reason why that slowed to, or there were a couple of reasons really why that slowed to some degree in the new year, partly... I think everybody realised that um, we were sprinting a marathon, if that's a, an appropriate analogy, and that we need time to regroup before filing the third proceeding. Um, part of that was a product of, you know, just taking the time to get instructions from kids about what had changed and, and what conditions were like on the ground. And then also, as you say, really thoroughly reviewing the, um, the the gazettal and the material that was considered by the minister in making the decision to regazette the Gravelia unit, and and um, taking stock of what arguments we we thought were still open to us in that third proceeding, um, and 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 I think the other factor was that, um, as you'll know, the, the third proceeding focused a lot more on the substantive charter breaches and it took us a little bit more time really to work through um, both the admin law grounds and, and particularly the charter grounds that we wanted to focus on in that third proceeding and to work out, you know, what material we needed in support. And in that third proceeding, for example, we obtained an expert report from a forensic child psychiatrist, and that was really instrumental, I think, evidence in the third case, in, in the justice fixing case. Um, and that, for example, obviously takes a little bit more time than gathering lay evidence. So all those sorts of factors are played into the slight slowing down of the pace um, and, and, yeah, much more factually dense um, the proceeding before Justice Dixon than the previous proceeding. After the decision of Justice Guard in December 2016, the State Government made a new decision, another decision to gazette that same part of Barwon, the maximum security prison, as a juvenile justice facility. And this time there was much more extensive briefing for the decision maker, much more extensive briefing which covered issues like what the human rights considerations were under the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities in Victoria. So it was quite a different case that came before Justice Dixon in April of 2017. So in April of 2017, before Justice Dixon, there were basically two arguments advanced in challenging the decision to gazette that part of Barwon Prison. And the first was that there weren't the necessary jurisdictional facts in place. So a jurisdictional fact is a precondition to a valid decision by an administrative decision maker. It's a state of affairs which must exist, a fact which must be in reality in existence before a valid decision can be made. And so if there are those sorts of preconditions to a decision, those sorts of jurisdictional facts which are required, a court can look at whether they in fact existed. And if they didn't exist before the decision was made, the court can invalidate their decision. 
So it puts the court in a less deferential position to the authority, the discretion of an administrative decision maker than if those sorts of hard preconditions don't exist. And here, the Children, Youth and Families Act included quite a number of statements of rights which had to be taken into account before a decision was made to gazette a new detention facility. And they included things like rights to uh, developmental needs being taken care of and rights on the part of detainees to have visitors. And the challenges to this new gazette argued that these weren't just matters to be taken into account to be considered in the course of making a decision, but that some sufficient protection of those rights, some sufficient guarantee of those rights was an essential precondition to the making of a decision and the court could look at the question of whether those rights were really guaranteed, whether those protections were really in place and if they weren't before the decision was made it could quash the decision. Justice Dixon didn't accede to that argument, he found against the challenges on that ground but he did find that notwithstanding that there had been some consideration of charter rights, in all the circumstances it wasn't proper consideration within the meaning of the charter. It wasn't sufficient consideration to satisfy the standard which the charter required. And the result of that was that the challengers won on that ground and again succeeded in quashing the gazettal of the Grevillea unit as a juvenile justice facility. of Justice Dixon's judgment that's my favourite is um, the proportionality considerations and, and the substantive the, the substantive substantive limb of the charter breaches. And I think um, in particular and this I see could be relevant um, in other contexts beyond the charter, but the aspect of Justin Dixon Justice Dixon's judgment that goes to um, whether the state ought to have applied additional resources in order to avoid the need for using the Grevillea unit and whether um, the care and protection of children who are most vulnerable, um, you know, required additional allocation of resources by the state. So I think on, on those um, considerations, Justice Dixon's judgment very well might um, immunise from some similar decision making in the future. Um, the fact that both elements of the charter grounds, both the procedural and the substantive limbs, were successful um, is really helpful as well because what Justice Dixon said was that um, even if ultimately uh, the conduct doesn't amount to a breach of um, the substantive limb, the substantive limb, even in those circumstances, you have to look at whether the procedural limb is breached in the way that the decision making took place. So I think all of those factors were very promising and, and you know, I suspect will inform um, charter judgments 
for years and years to come. And, you know, the people described it as a landmark decision from, from a charter perspective, which I would agree with. The achievement of the Bowen cases was that it, um, the, the ultimate outcome was obviously for the bodies to be removed back to a more appropriate justice facilities. And from a legal perspective, I think a critically important judgment um, about the charter and how it can be applied and, and I guess, the scope of its power. Um, and I think in, in, in a, a national context, the cases might over time embolden others in other jurisdictions to think about the situation for young people um, and and how these cases might be relevant in their own jurisdictions. And obviously there's amazing people doing this work all around the country. So I think in that sense it's a tool. I think the cases are a tool um, for some change. But I, but I do think that strategic litigation like what we did in Victoria is really most effective or in that context was most effective in preventing regressive change. So, you know, in the government um, took, a, took a step, made a decision to move the kids to an adult facility, which was a departure in some ways from what had generally been considered by many people a fairly progressive youth justice system in Victoria. So I think in, in terms of intervening to prevent that regressive step, the litigation was... But then I think in terms of forward momentum and real progress, in a way, it's much more difficult to achieve that through litigation alone. And I think that really relies on probably um, other tactics um, for example, you know, the NGO sector creating and advocating for um, alternative models of detention or alternative um, ways of dealing with children in the criminal justice system. I think those tactics which are being used by N NGO sectors all around the country, I think those tactics are in some ways more effective or, or need to be considered in conjunction with litigation to achieve real positive forward movement and, and change. Um, I think litigation alone can't really do all of those things. Uh, and that was a really important learning for me because, as you said, you know, the cases did what they set out to do but didn't necessarily... Um, inform or improve the bigger picture of youth justice either in Victoria or nationally. So, yeah, that was a, a really important learning, I think, in terms of the complementary advocacy, the complementary partnerships with um, people outside of the legal profession. Those things, I think, are critical um, in really maximising the impact of strategic litigation. This kind of work, of course, can be really personally costly and I talked a bit to Elena Lakin about the experience of the litigation and the challenges of dealing with that. I think it's really hard. You know, I've reflected a lot on the impact of, impact of doing this type of work, particularly, you know, if, if it's 
something that you're committed to doing long term. I mean, I think my view, at least at the moment, is that it's pretty impossible to do work with people, particularly people in closed environments, particularly children in closed environments who are probably as vulnerable as as anyone in our society to abuse and mistreatment. Um, I think it's pretty impossible to do that work and not be damaged by it in some way. And I think the question really is how you mitigate some of that damage. Um, But I think seeing that level of suffering um, and even when you are doing everything you can to help, it can feel completely disempowering and, and just despairing, you know, on such a deep level. Um, and I think there were times, like, you know, I recall in particular a time, and this was quite widely publicised, where a client who I'd been working with really closely um, was really viciously assaulted and the result of that was that he had um, two broken vertebrae in his neck. So a really serious injury, uh, you know, it could have been even more serious and potentially life-threatening. You know, it was one of those kind of miracles that he wasn't worse injured as a result. Um, and we had been warning the department over the preceding days that he was at really high risk and that he needed to be urgently transferred out of the Gravillia unit and had no traction on those requests and then found out that he was at Geelong Hospital and, and, you know, we weren't informed and his mother wasn't informed of what had happened. So there were times when a generally very distressing situation was even more acutely distressing. And I think, you know, as kind of, in a way, one of the only links to the outside for a lot of these kids, there is such a high level of pressure and responsibility to do absolutely everything possible, you know, irrespective of the time, day or night, weekend, whatever, holidays, whatever it might be, to make sure that they're as protected as they can be. Um, and I and I think ultimately that does take a, a really a really huge toll. I think I've been really lucky to work in organisations that are very thoughtful and supportive about those things and, and um, and the impact of doing this type of work. But I do think there's only so much you can mitigate it if you choose to work in these types of environments. Whilst we got the final judgment in the Victorian cases in May 2017 and, you know, my involvement in youth justice in the Northern Territory didn't really start until at least a year later, it's sort of, in hindsight now, feels like there's really been very little gap in between. Um, and I think, I mean, I think the experience of having worked on these cases in Victoria taught me two things. Firstly, that I'm deeply passionate about working with young people in these environments. That the time that I got to spend with um, the boys who were detained at Crevillia was really... Um, you know, immensely difficult because of the suffering that that I witnessed them experiencing, but also incredibly rewarding because, you know, being one-on-one with these kids, you see just how polite and clever and um, 
inspired and inspiring they can be and and all of those incredibly positive and and um you know optimistic moments of seeing the loveliest side of a human being in in a most horrific situation and so i think that for me really meant that i i did want to keep doing this work so that's the story of the intense litigation around the transfer of juvenile detainees from Parkville to Bowen Prison. Obviously, juvenile detention remains very much uh, a hot topic in discussions about criminal justice, and I'm very grateful to Elena Lakin for talking to me uh, about that. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of In That Case. Once again, you can find past episodes on the website, on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher, and you can find me on Twitter at at Townsend Joel C. I'll look forward to joining you again for the next episode. Mm-hmm.